Welcome to Bleacher Blum, a sports podcast for baseball fans. Now, the current master of banter for the Houston Astros television broadcast team, Blummer. Yeah, here we are, fans. We are back out in the bleachers, and it is Bleacher Blum's podcast coming at you. I, of course, am Jeff Blum, one of the co-hosts of Bleacher Blum's. I've played 14 years in the major leagues for six different teams. I had been traded. I had been fired, released, re-signed, assigned, all that kind of fun stuff. And now I'm currently the Astros television color commentary slash analyst for the Astros television broadcast. I know that's a lot of information for a relatively easy job that I feel I get to do. And then on the other side of the coast, out there in California, I've got a very good friend of mine who played for Team USA, played college ball, and just didn't get the break he needed when he was playing in the minor leagues, but was traded for some big names throughout the course of his minor league career. That, of course, is David Tuttle, most notably of what'll Tuttle say that happens later on in this podcast. But it has been a lot of fun doing these podcasts. It is picking up steam, and we owe that all to the fans. And David Tuttle, I know, has some mailbag coming at you a little bit later, but I want to let everybody know that we are doing so well that we've got sponsors. And, of course, St. Arnold is a huge sponsor of this podcast. They've got strong roots in the state of Texas, in the city of Houston. They are Houston's oldest craft brewery. They do a great job, and we have a great affiliation with them because they have treated us so well, not just in giving us free beer and root beer to my kids, but also because they provide a great product and help us out getting this podcast on the air. And I keep telling you guys, a couple of my beers that I really enjoy, Lawnmower is one of my favorites, and hopefully at some point it's going to be summer out here in Houston. I know that that's asking for the devil to show up on your doorstep because it ends up being about 150 degrees every single day. But uh, I I enjoy the lawnmower on those nice warm days because it's refreshing. It's an outdoor beer. It's great when you're barbecuing. Uh, It's won a couple of gold medals at the Great American Beer Festival, which is a big deal. Crisp, thirst quenching, and a little bit lower on the alcohol side so you can have a couple more. So we really appreciate the lawnmower brought to you by St. Arnold. And of course, you can go to starnold.com and check out some of the events they've got going on. Business out of the way to begin with. David Tuttle, my man, my co-host. How have you been, and how are things going out there on the left coast? I'm just sulking a little bit from the uh, Super Bowl, the big game. And the more you talk about Got the beer, yeah, the more the more you talk about the beer, I'm thinking, I wonder what kind of beer Blummer is <laughs> going to ask for. I'm going to be hunting around San Clemente. We've got, like I said, the Lost Coast um, Brewery down here. I'm sorry, Left Coast, and then there's Lost Winds Brewery, Artifacts, Pizza Port, all those uh, lovely yeah, breweries Swamis right here. Good about right now. Yeah, Swamis, that's good stuff. We get that at Trader Joe's and uh, Whole Foods here. You got to be able to get that out there. I haven't checked, to be honest with you. I may have to go do that because that is a great beer. I missed that. Oh, yeah, Swamis IPA from uh, Pizza Port. But anyway, no, I lost my Super Bowl bet, so I'm sulking a little bit, tail between my legs. But uh, that read for St. Arnold, man, it's uh, it's making me think about the uh, six-pack I got to send your way. But everything else is good. You were talking about the weather. It's cold out there. We've had a little cold spell. We had some Santa Anas. We've been down to 50, 55 here. And, uh, you know, us Southern Californians, woo, we can't take that. I know. How do you how do you handle that? You have to break out. Yeah, because you actually made fun of me because I did get on this podcast. Uh, uh, Tuttle and I Skyped this to record, but we, we 
see each other when we do this podcast. If I was a little more advanced, I'd put up a YouTube channel or something, maybe someday. But uh, I had a flannel on. He was kind of making fun of me about that. But uh, any day I get to wear my Lynx all flannels, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And it does kind of bring me back to some of those cool mornings on the West Coast. But speaking of the Super Bowl, God, that one was – this Super Bowl was so much better than last year's where it was a field goal fest, defensive everywhere. We finally got to see some offense. The Niners got out to a quick start. I don't know if you had a little bit of panic in you, but I was kind of concerned. But the way the Chiefs have rolled through their postseason, playing from behind has been remarkable. And, of course, Patrick Mahomes gets Andy Reid, that ever-elusive – Super Bowl championship. What were your thoughts on that Super Bowl now that we've got the bet out of the way? And I did win because I took the Chiefs, and I will probably hit you up for some swamis. But how did you feel about this year's Super Bowl? Yeah, you know, I enjoyed it. I really did. And I, I just wish, I, you know, last podcast we talked about the worst month in the history of the world or, you know, <laughs> is this the worst year ever? I, here I am riding the ship again. I got some feedback on that in the mailbag, and people like that I keep the, uh, that I keep the ship upright. But you know, I, I, I'm not even a homer. I wanted the Niners. I thought they had the better defense. I'm here on the left coast. And so everyone's like, hey, Tuttle, you're a homer. I'm like, look, I thought the Super Bowl was great. It was super entertaining. But I, I hate that the conversation is now Shanahan's choked twice. First of all, he wasn't the head coach in Atlanta. The head coach was Dan Quinn. And Gotta remember that. That's right. Everyone's like, oh, it's two Super Bowls. No, no, no. Shanahan was not the head coach. And you know, Jimmy Garoppolo, they're saying, like, you know, we got to trade him. He's a top 10, top 11 quarterback in the league. He missed that one throw, and it shouldn't be on his shoulders. If that if that ball's caught, I mean, you were talking about an exciting Super Bowl, then they win, and we're not, you know, we're having a different discussion. And even about the push-off on the pass interference uh, on Kittle, I was shocked by that too, man. Yeah, that was a big was, play. That was a big play, but honestly, the game, you know, it's give and take. You know this. There's good yeah. calls both ways, bad calls the other way. I mean, sure. Mahomes looked terrible for really three quarters. Which, I mean, <laughs> Bosa, Bosa is a machine. I, Dude, I don't know what that the stats guy were. Is a that bad guy was, ass. Yeah, I mean, he was making everything. The play to me that made the game, and I'm not an analyst, it was 20 to 10 with about nine minutes left in the game, was the uh, third and 15 play. I mean, that was the mm -hmm. play. And you wonder as a fan, like, how how do you get so open? How did that happen? But that that really turned the kind of the momentum and turned the tide. But uh, as you said, so much more entertaining than last year. And I think it's funny when fans, that's why they call them fans, fanatics. I mean, we know plenty of Astros fans that listen to our podcast. But, you know, I mean, even though you're a Patriots fan and they got their sixth Super Bowl win last year, that was the worst Super Bowl to watch. <laughs> what was it, like 14 to 10 or something or 14 terrible, yeah. it's the worst and they're like yeah patriots it's like i would much rather have no skin in the game or a six pack of beer on the line and watch uh the niners and the chiefs go at it because that was a great game and you know you can't but uh feel good about it for andy reed and uh and i think i hate using this line that everybody uses which is yeah the Chiefs will be back. The Niners will be back, you know, because everyone thought the Ravens were the best team this year. You don't know if they'll be back, but I really enjoy um, the way the Niners built their team, and I really enjoy watching Mahomes play. So, No, I agree with you. It was a highly entertaining. There were great storylines, but, you know, your comment about the coaching kind of goes back to our previous podcast, talking about how much of an effect does coaching really have out there because you can put all the game plans you want out there. You'll still need the players to go out there and make the plays. Jimmy Garopp Garoppolo, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, the people are going to snap and want to trade him after losing, not not the division game, you know, not a conference game, but the Super Bowl. And are you in the Super Bowl without Jimmy G behind the center? You know, I mean, that, that 
when you bring up comments like that or you see comments, and I'm sure you feel the same way because you've been on the receiving end as a player from some of these some of these comments from uh, journalists, from podcasters, broadcasters, fans, is that you you start to understand and then you pile in all of the Astros garbage and people are going against the Astros and freaking out and calling them names. It kind of it really brings the sense of irrationality that goes with being a fan. It does. I, I wrote down a note earlier. It said sports talk and journalism are like politics. You know, rarely, rarely is anyone accountable for what they say. And so I mean, look at Derrick Henry. Derrick Henry, like, is Ryan Tannehill the greatest quarterback of all time? No, but he won two playoff games. Is he the worst quarterback of all? No, he's doing what he's asked to do. You know, that's like saying, you know, that uh, that uh, Marisnik's not as valuable as somebody else on that team. It's like, well, yeah, you plug him in the seventh inning, he makes a diving catch, you know, that nobody else could make or that very few people could make, and 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 he's part of the team. Or I mean, that's that's he has that's a role. What, that's what he's asked to do, and he fills it appropriately. I yeah. think, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo, if he makes that throw, we're obviously not having this conversation, but he's not asked to throw a lot. And in the second quarter and the third quarter, he was like 17 for 20. I mean, he, he only <laughs> yeah. threw the ball nine times the game before that. I will say this. If your team's built on running, um, you know, it was really funny how Joe Buck and, and, and Aikman got to this point where they were like, the Niners are getting away from the running game. And as soon as it came out of Aikman's mouth, Moster for 32 yards, Moster for seven yards, you know, <laughs> Coleman for 10. It was like, they're not getting away from it. They were kind of setting it up, but then they just started to run and you could see they're a running team. So to say they got away from it, look, this is a chess match. People take things away. People add things that they're strategic um, components to it. And, and, and I think people overcomplicate things. It, it was a really good game. They were the two best teams uh, this year and, and I enjoyed it. So, you know, yeah. And I think it's amazing. You pointed out that Patrick Mahomes was not a very good quarterback for three quarters, and he has one good quarter, leads him to a 21-point comeback in the last six minutes of the game, and he ends up being the Super Bowl MVP. But what's most shocking to me is that how he did it against, like what you just said, the 49ers defense, because what do we always say? Defense wins championships, and it didn't win it for the Niners. Yeah, well, give me the MVP thing. I wrote down a couple guys I thought could have been MVP. Was was Patrick Mahomes the MVP? No. Oh. Good. I'm glad we didn't talk about this off air, but I wrote down like I was shocked when I was watching the game and they go to the end and they're like MVP Patrick Mahomes. And I went, wait a minute, is, that dude showed up world? for five minutes. Yeah. Wait a second. I want to I want to show up for five minutes. Now I think <laughs> I, I I heard the stat hey, like the first five minutes of this show, you are the MVP. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah. Thank you. Yes, I heard MVP already. I'm going to shut it down. Um, so uh, yeah, good. So do you have thoughts on who would who is the MVP or is this like the Hall of Fame where it's like you know oh, that guy's a Hall of Famer. Or you're, or you're, like, you don't know that if he was the MVP, but you know he wasn't. <laughs> I know, and it, it, it kind of gets to the point where you have to give it to an individual. So you start going down the pecking order, and you're like, all right, Patrick Mahomes gets it. He put up decent numbers. You know, he didn't put up Patrick Mahomes numbers that we're used to, but he played well enough in the end to go out there and get it. I'm not, to be honest, I, I'm really not sure who I would have given it to. To be honest with you, I don't have the stat sheet in front of me, but there was really Patrick Mahomes was not the guy who jumped off the sheet at me and said, you know, that's the guy. You know, it could have been Damian Williams. It could have been, uh, shoot, for a while there, I thought it was going to be the fullback, you know, of the 49ers. Yeah, Jurchik, I think. What'd you just call me? Yeah, exactly. What? 
hey, that guy that guy has a football last name, and he was playing some football. I yeah, agree. You know, Damian Williams is a good one. Somebody threw out that he only had 80 yards rushing or 78 yards rushing or something. I'm like, he had two touchdowns. Um, if he was the real MVP, he would have slid at the one-yard line there and kept everything <laughs> in line, right? Like, yeah. just take a knee there instead of scoring, you know? Kill the spread and everything. He, he heard everything. We can get into that. That would have been incredible. Yeah, we can get, on that, get into that on Don't Bet On It. I will say... Um, you know, Mahomes, the over on Mahomes rushing. Do you know that was 40? Did you hear that statistic? No, I didn't see that. The I didn't over see, under. A couple prop bets, but I didn't yeah. see that one. So one of the prop bets was over under for Mahomes at 40 yards. So he was at 44 yards till the last series, and he took the knee three times, but he dropped back. He took him back no to way. 20. Yeah, 29 yards rushing for the game. They had already won the bet, and then you got lost. paid, and then had to give it back. Well, they didn't get paid, but they were <laughs> cashing tickets. They were like, "Hey, we got this thing wrapped up," and he backed up, backed up, backed up, and he went 29 yards rushing. Oh, yeah, that's outstanding. But yeah, great Super Bowl, good times. I appreciated everything. Uh, the halftime. I mean, J-Lo and Shakira, I would have been fine if Shakira would have just been the show. I thought she stole it to start the whole thing off. And I love I love J-Lo going out there. I know there's a lot. I'm a, I'm a father of four girls, again, to give you an idea of where I am at this. The only issue I had with them being scantily clad and dancing and having a good time was the pole. If you got rid of the pole, hey, I'm good. Then it does, doesn't doesn't take on the whole stripper connotation, you know? So other than that, I was fine with it. I know it was risque, whatever, but I thought they did a phenomenal job. I was entertained. My daughters are old enough now at 14 and 16 to understand what they feel is appropriate and what they don't feel is appropriate. But at the same time, I thought it was a great show. I, I didn't watch it, so. You sell out. Yeah, you know, I, 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 there are certain acts I like. That one, you know, J-Lo doesn't do it for me. I, I guess I watched a couple of the Shakira songs, and I just don't get offended by stuff like that. I wasn't like, yeah. it's not a titillating thing. You either like the music and the entertainment or you don't. And, you know, I just, I, I, I was making chicken wings or something at the time, so. Yeah, I'm not, a I'm not a fan of either of them, but I thought it was entertaining. I wasn't blown away by it, but I thought it was fine and entertaining. I thought it fit in Miami with the Latin community, which was great how they played into that. But in you not watching the halftime show kind of leads me into my next topic of The Bachelor. I watched The Bachelor. I am all in on The Bachelor, unfortunately, and it's driving me nuts. And there is just so much ridiculous drama and personalities in this thing that this is like seriously the first bachelor or bachelorette season i've ever watched in so far totality i'm not sure i'm going to make it through because pete the pilot is a complete nozzle i can't i mean the drama that's happening in the house has a lot to do with his ability to not decide or have a backbone in any kind of opinion and i know this is too much information for you but at the same time it has now turned into that collision that i can see happening with reality and bad tv and i can't peel my eyes away from it and unfortunately i have to say i'm invested that's a public service announcement from blummer so you guys can all <laughs> figure that out i uh I, I mean i wish i had a comment i i have watched the bachelor or the bachelorette in the past i have i have I probably haven't watched it in five years so i have no idea what's going on i'm assuming pete the pilot is the bachelor for the season is that yeah. correct okay. yeah 
and he's still giving roses to women on certain occasions. Is that where we're at? On Dude, that? he's brought two people back. He brought back oh. a girl from Hannah B from freaking last year. He brought back, uh, a, I think her name is Alea after he kicked her off. And then he has buyer's remorse on that one, brings her back, stirs the pot with her bringing her back. I mean, it just got out of control. And then he kicked her off again. So I'm hoping that two strikes and you're gone is the deal with Alea. But as you rub your forehead looking at me, I will try and end this as quickly as I can because it's gotten a little out of control with Pete having the inability to pick a route. Yeah, I mean, the, I, I would say the one uh, probably uh, characteristic that you need to be on the show is to be decisive and be a decision maker because at the end of every show, if I recall, you have to give women a rose and you have to say, yes, I want to give her one or no, I don't. So if you don't have a backbone and you're struggling with that part of the process, you should probably not have made it through the casting yeah. call to get to that point. I mean, look, none of these people get married. Like you don't have to like, you <laughs> there's know, been this 30 shows. Show. And I think eight people might still be together. Yeah. I mean, if you're not, if you're not trying to save yourself for marriage, you know, like let's look at the top four that I really like. And you can probably have a, a, an entertaining evening or two with every one of those <laughs> women. You do not have to marry them unless that's the new part of the show. I mean, as a matter of fact, the host, Chris, he got divorced, like, you know, season five. Like, he's probably just saw these women coming in and out going, all right, uh, yeah. you know, I made a bad decision. So, anyway, I, I just think, I also think the environment probably does not foster uh, good decision-making oh, and, and backbone and all that. So, you add champagne and cattiness and, and no backbone into, like, some pot and stir it, and there's some witch, you know, witch yeah. <laughs> hovering over the, the big... Well, uh, cauldron going yes this is exactly what i wanted yeah let's be honest when you say which you mean producers and the producers have complete autonomy in this thing they they can pull the strings and they send all the video to the editor and they say this is the angle we want to move with so yeah i'm with you in the sense that uh yeah it has gotten a little in incredibly crazy but to your point about making the decision and having the backbone don't you if you agree to be the bachelor or the bachelorette you you can't go into that position and be scared to hurt somebody's feelings i i agree wholeheartedly i mean even if it comes down to the final two you know that somebody's going to cry and you may cry if you've really developed that relationship in x amount of weeks and you really like two women which you know could be feasible right these are beautiful women and these are people you spend you know a week with in Italy at the Four Seasons, like, you know, that probably enhances your uh, feelings about them instead of living in your trailer and, you know, kind of like trying to figure out if you're going to have kids or not. You're messed but up. I am. But I'm just saying they have two women, then you can cry. But yeah, the, the you know, I don't know. I, I guess I, I'm over the, the Bachelor, but I appreciate the update. And I'm sure we'll get some uh, mailbag uh, questions now about oh, The yeah. Bachelor or The Bachelorette. I'm definitely sure. Why don't you hit that thing up and let's get some serious talk in this podcast going. All right, here we go. Uh, so uh, just to reiterate, you can get us at bleacherblums.com. That's where the mailbag is and ask us a question. We filled it up this week and I will be honest, we're not going to get to all the questions. So there are people that write in every week. There are people that have never written in. I'm not showing favoritism. I'm filtering. I'm Thank filtering you fans. appropriately. And, uh, this is Eric M. This is our, our favorite Semper Fi Marine. He wrote in before, but I yeah. like, he thinks I'm John Cryer, so I, I always like to read his <laughs> question. So, Eric, you get to start off the mailbag again this week. So, before my question, some high praise. John Cryer, or I mean David Tiger Blood Tuttle, told me that since I started on episode 46 to go back and listen to the first 45. Kudos on editing. You guys are much, much better now. So, oh, he, he did it. 
yeah. the content has always been top notch. But the first few episodes, it was like the view with y'all talking over each other, waiting in eternity for what'll Tuttle say. LOL. Tuttle man, you went from a poor man's Bob Euchre self-deprecating gimmick to a highly motivating and entertaining dude. Just don't turn into Kenny Powers now. <laughs> I love the Kenny Powers reference. That's how he made the podcast. Bummer, blummer. He said bummer, so I don't know, but I think he meant blummer. Thank you for the ability to get us common folk access to some great interviews. AJ Hinch, Megan O'Brien. And I'm a little less homesick when the Astros are on AFN and they have the local Houston feed. That's the uh, Air Force Network or the uh, Armed Forces Network. Sorry. Okay, my question. With the Astros, Mets, and Red Sox all seeking to fill management positions at the time of my email, which fictional manager do you think could lead these franchises to the World Series? This is a great question. I just thought this was going to be entertaining. So we have studied the Peaches manager, Jimmy Dugan. Nice. From a league of their own. Uh, the Cleveland Indians manager, Lou Brown, major league. Uh, Morris Buttermaker. From the Bad News Bears, as we know. Durham Bulls manager Joe Riggins. Or the Knights manager Pop Fisher from The Natural. Anybody I miss, I'll hang up and listen, he says. And that's from Eric M. I love it. That's a great way to start off the mailbag, Eric. And Blummer, I'm throwing that one to you. I haven't answered them. Oh, man. In, it, it's not going to be Lou Brown from the... Uh, ah! No, it's not going to be Lou Brown unless he's trying to undress Rob Manfred after every win. That might be the only appealing attribute uh, Lou Brown brought to the table. Uh, if you would have said Crash Davis as the manager, I might have bought into that one. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm you're a big allowed Jim to add your own candidate. I mean, Crash Davis when he retires is going to be a good manager. That's what they say at the end of the movie, right? Yeah, there you go. So, I mean, if I had a write-in, I would put Crash Davis just because I know he's been through the mud a little bit, so to speak, and had to grind it out and appreciates playing at this level. Uh, but it, as far as entertainment value, I kind of you – know, Jimmy Dugan is very similar and emotional to a, 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 a an Aussie Gian in that sense. So I find him highly entertaining. And I know when I played for Ozzy Gian in 2005, he deflected a lot of issues we had maybe at times with his, uh, his press conferences and his interviews. So I think that's where Jimmy Dugan might be highly entertaining is trying to spin the the issue with the Astros right now. But uh, if I was going to play, who the other question might be, who would you want to play for? And I might want to play for the, uh, I can't remember, you just said it, the old dude for uh, from The Natural or whatever. I think he'd be awesome to play for just because he was that nose in the dirt, yeah, angry, Fisher. grumpy old man. Pop Fisher. Yeah, Pop. Yeah, I would have I I run through the wall for Pop. Yeah, so I'm on, a, I'm on a little bit of a kick. My daughter's playing Little League now instead of softball, but uh, I'm a Morris Buttermaker fan. I think he's a, he's a player's manager. He's going to leave you leave you alone. He's got some Budweisers in the uh, in the dugout, and uh, you know he just he's he's a player's manager. He cleans pools during the day, and he's just he's just all business in the dugout, and he's going to let you be. So uh, I take Morris Buttermaker to uh, at least fill the Astros spot. I guess he said, asked the Astros, Mets, and Red Sox. And so as an Astros fan, you want the best manager, and I guess as the Red Sox fan, you want the worst manager. So. <laughs> You could give uh, you could give Lou Brown to the Red Sox and then work your way back. So, good stuff. That was a All good right. question. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate yeah. your service too. Yeah, appreciate your service. And I, I just, I mean, that was an entertaining email, and that's why I got on there. But uh, yeah, I, I'm looking to play for Morris Buttermaker as we go. So, uh, 
Landy, uh, Landy A is on here again. Hey, fellas, I'm looking for some dad advice today. I figured you two'd be perfect to ask since you're both raising a small army. Growing up, I never had the privilege of having private lessons for any anything. So I'm wondering, when is the appropriate age to start your children in private lessons like piano, softball, et cetera? And get off my lawn should be a permanent segment. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag girl dad. That's outstanding. Um, get your kid into private lessons as soon as you possibly can. It's sometimes in the club leagues, I have a little bit of an issue because all of a sudden you're you're getting into the team environment and coaching may not be what you want it to be. But if you can find somebody who your your child appreciates, listens to, and wants to learn from, go with it. And you know, we we all have regrets in some shape or form, but one of my mildest regrets is not forcing, and I don't, I mean, I don't mean forcing, but I mean encouraging my daughters to play more piano. I know that Tuttle, you have a son who is a very good piano player. And I know that my a couple of my daughters, most notably Kayla, one of the triplets, is is very astute in the art aspect of the world and has an ear for music. And literally, she stopped playing, I think, when she was about eight or nine years old. She's now 14, and she can pick up and play the piano certain pieces. And I, damn, if I don't miss that. I wish she would have, you know, I would have done a better job encouraging that. Now, I also have four volleyball players who are not playing club volleyball this season because they were a little jaded by the situation and the politics of it. And I've kind of encouraged my kids to play for the purity of the sport and then the joy of the sport that it brings to them. So they didn't find that in club yet, but we are now taking them. We have a, a volleyball coach that we take them to for private lessons and they actually, Hey, we're going to private lessons. They put on their shoes, they go. So we've kind of found that and that's where we're at. I don't know if that helps you at all, but I really encourage at a young age, if you can just find a way not necessarily quote unquote force your kid, but in really encourage them to kind of fight through the, the mundane, the, the monotony of the early piano lessons or the early music lesson or sports lesson to get past that because I think they'll become better, not just physically or musically or artistically, but I think mentally and emotionally learning how to get through that grind and take lessons is a huge attribute to have. I, I agree with that. And I will say, I, let's, let's, the privilege of private lessons, I think, is a little bit different when we say the privilege. I mean, I don't think you need to like spend a lot of money to necessarily do that. The other thing I realize is like going to two soccer practices a week or two baseball practices, those practices have their agenda. So it's like, hey, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna warm up over here, we're gonna do the passing drill, then we're gonna do two on two drill, and then we're gonna have a scrimmage, and that's it. So if you really enjoy the sport and you want to get some fun out of it, the the personal one-on-one -on -one attention, I notice I take my one daughter to like a soccer trainer and it'll help her in baseball. He works on footwork. He does ladder yes. drills. He does like this. And then he's like, all right, this is what you need to do here. And you're jumping and moving. And so it's a completely different experience as well. And so, um, and you mentioned my son's a pianist. He's, he really enjoys that. And I think when they have an affinity for something that certainly helps you to guide them in that, um, in that direction, but you're getting something completely different, like playing piano in a band or guitar in a band is different than going to an instructor and getting those lessons. And so I think the, uh, you know, the old 10,000 hours mantra, and then just kind of getting the totality of it instead of, all right, I'm playing in a group here, I'm playing at school in the band, 
now I'm also working outside of school to kind of hone my craft and work on some different things that'll ultimately make that other experience more uh, impactful and better for me. And, and just lastly, to finish up on what you said about the encouragement piece, you know, I, I do have one daughter who doesn't do anything. I mean, she's an artist and she draws and paints and writes and does those things, but she won't go take a class. She won't do this or that. So um, I would say encourage or nudge or shove into something and give them like a timeline. Like if you do this four times, like do it for a month and it's once a week for a month and Pretty they cool. and they hate it, then they can quit. But I want you to give it, you know, the old college try. I want you to give it a four try, uh, a four try opportunity. Absolutely agree. That's good stuff. Good advice. Great question too, because that's part of what this podcast we want it to be is, you know, as informative and give you as many, as many opinions of our experience in the baseball realm and the parenting realm. And we're going to give a quick shout out to Peterson's right here. Go ahead and take it away, Tuttle. Today's Bleacher Blums podcast is sponsored by Peterson's Test Prep. For over 50 years, Peterson's has helped active duty service members, veterans, and first responders advance their careers. Whether you're looking to join the military, advance within the military, or transition to a civilian career, Peterson's will help you on your journey. Peterson's provides online learning courses and test preparation for military exams like ASFAB and the AFOQT, as well as career licensure exams needed to become an EMT, paramedic, or law enforcement officer. Visit Peterson's at www.petersons.com. Use the coupon code BASEBALL. I wonder how they came up with that. During checkout for 20% off your first purchase. For every path, there is a test. And for every test, there's Peterson's, www.petersons.com. All right, let's get back to mailbag. All right, this one's a little bit long. We only got a couple more uh, for the mailbag. Um, this one is uh, from Tracy G. All my friends know that I'm a diehard Astros fan, so the ones who are fans of other teams have enjoyed sending me memes, commentaries, and jokes. It's fine. I've been using episode 52 of Bleacher Blums as a counterpoint to a lot of the hate that is being spewed our way. Along with that, I've been saying this, which most of us already know and have discussed. I think this investigation is just the tip of the iceberg. I think that people, and especially players of other teams who are spewing out accus accusations, need to be careful in the glass house that they are living in. But I also think that Manfred is not going to dig much deeper because he's going to realize all the cheating, rule bending, and lying is just going to make the MLB organization look terrible. Do you agree? Do you think everything else is going to be swept under the rug? One of my friends who reg regrettably is a Dodgers fan. You have friends that are Dodger fans, Tracy? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> said he agreed, but then added, but I think my Dodgers are clear, though. Ha. I literally laughed at him because that was the same day the Brewers were throwing accusations the Dodgers way. So will Manfred man up and expose it all, or are we just going to be the Patriots of the MLB, the team who everyone hates despite the amazing talent and success they have? Keep getting riled up, Blummer, and keep talking us off the proverbial edge. Tuttle, <laughs> Tracy. And, and let me just take this one first because Chris Young came out. Chris Young, the outfielder, not Chris Young, the pitcher who's been with a couple of different teams came out yesterday or the day before saying that he got the Yankees watch or the, I'm sorry, the Apple watch idea from the Yankees that he brought it to the Red Sox. So, I mean, uh, you know, the short answer is that the, the punishment is harsh. We realize that, uh, that they're trying to scare everybody else away from doing this. There is some evidence that other teams were doing it. And I think that, I don't know if the Manfred sweeping it under the rug is the right answer, but I feel like they're going to try and move on from this as quickly as possible. Yeah, 
I think you're right. And it was interesting to hear the uh, Chris Young comments come out. Peter Gammons trying to backtrack or whatever. I don't know what he was trying to do with that whole situation. But I don't think a lot of us were shocked when we heard that news come out about a guy going from a team to another team. And, oh, by the way, I, do we? I don't know if we need to point this out, but I'm just going to do it because – it's interesting. Chris Young was with the Yankees when Carlos Beltran was there, just saying, and moved on from that. And Beltran went to the Astros, and then Chris Young went to the uh, Red Sox. But anyways, I think Tracy's six, on. Six degrees of separation or six right? degrees of Kevin Bacon or six degrees of something. Like, yeah. we could start – we could do what that guy did with the garbage can bangs, like that little <laughs> algorithm he did, and start – let's look at which teams – we think we're doing it and start looking at which guys were on the 40 man roster and which guys moved. I know people are already doing that, but Oh my goodness. I think if, we'd find out that it's pretty deep and wide. I think if we took that theory of the six degrees of the trash can, we would find out that 80% of the league <laughs> banged that trash can in 2017 with the as many tentacles have come off that trash can. So it's out there. And I think Tracy's onto something that hasn't been talked about too much is that Manfred wanted to go get the Astros. He got them. And then all of a sudden you start peeling back the layers of that onion and you're like, okay, the Red Sox were in on it too. And I think that's where he kind of got lost in the fact that, oh my gosh, there are guys all over the place doing the same thing. And now we're going to start pointing fingers at everybody. Every, we're going to give every whistleblower a voice. And if you try to start exploring all of that, you're going to spend the next two, three years uncovering stuff that you don't want to uncover. And it's going to hurt baseball. So I agree in the sense that, good Lord, we haven't even heard about the uh, issues the Red Sox are going to have with whether it be suspensions for Alex Cora or taking away draft picks for them and things like that. So there's still repercussions in that sense. But I do believe that once they get past the Red Sox, it's going to stop there because I think Manfred knows in order for baseball to succeed, you've got to keep the fans. And the less we hear about this sign-stealing crap, the more people are going to come back and just watch the games. And, and that kind of goes to our, our point that we've made for the last few podcasts, which is there's going to be some collective apology, not just from the Astros, but maybe the key you know, there, the key right there, you nailed it. And people need to understand this who are Astro fans, collective apology. Yes. Yeah. And, and I, I, and I'm saying not just the Astros, there'll be a collective apology. Like the players association will come up with something like where Alex Cora and Carlos idea. Beltran and all those guys are kind of like, Hey, you know what? We realize that this put a, you know, maybe a stain on the game for this year. And we're just going to go out and play, you know, play hard. And remember, this was two or three years ago, 17. There's no evidence moving forward. You know, they must have got rid of something. But I, I just feel like that's going to be, you know, the collective apology will kind of, you know, let us move onward and upward. And I, I don't remember the title of the article. I know I sent it to you. I sent it to other couple people that I know. They thought the article was long, but the article on ESPN about the cheating, it started yeah, in 1880. 1880, 1917, <laughs> the Black Sox scandal, this, you know, Gaylord Perry, like, you know, the shot heard around the world, you know, <laughs> like, just keep going back. And this is what people have done in baseball for years and years and years. And if you want to look up that article, maybe I'll put it on our website or something like that. Um, I don't know if I can with be, being that it's well, in I can ESPN. include it in the show notes. Uh, okay, there we go. If you, if you send it to me, yeah. All right, let me jump on this question. We got two more questions. I really like these questions today, Blummer. I'm sorry it's the bulk of the podcast, but it's, I, I mean, these, no these questions are fantastic. Uh, this is from Luis. Uh, Luis is from Puerto Rico. So, hey, I'm writing here from Beautiful and Shaky because of the earthquakes, Puerto Rico. I've followed your podcast from the very beginning and enjoy it very much. Thanks so much, Luis. From your conversations, I get the impression that Jeff never played winter baseball, but David did. I wanted to ask, 
if you believe it's a good thing for a player to be active in winter baseball or if it poses too much of a risk injury-wise. There have been many great players that have played here in Puerto Rico and elsewhere in the Caribbean, but recently established players shy away from playing. As a side note, 1995, we probably had the best pro team in Puerto Rico. We called it the Dream Team. It included two Hall of Famers, Roberto Alomar and Edgar Martinez. The team was so good that Pudge Rodriguez was left off. The catcher on that team was a guy by the name of Carlos Delgado. The cast was assembled because you guys wanted to guys wanted to stay in shape after the 1994 baseball strike. We've also had 37 non-Puerto Rican Hall of Famers play here, including Sandy Koufax, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Johnny Bench, Cal Ripken Jr., Ricky Henderson, and Jim Tomey, just to name a few. So excellent, Luis. Um, so really the question, obviously, Blummer, I'll, I'll, I'll recap, is, mm-hmm. you know, what, what are your opinions about winter ball and, you know, what do people utilize it for? I think it's changed. And I'm not sure why it's changed, but I know that when you and I were coming up through the ranks, because we played during the eras of the Carlos Delgados and the Roberto Alomars and, and some of these guys that he's been throwing names that have been throwing out there in uh, Puerto Rico and the Caribbean, you know, Caribbean World Series is infamous. The Dominican Republic, the, you know, uh, going all the way over to Venezuela, Colombia. There were some great teams out there, and what I mean by that, it's changed a little bit is when David Tuttle and I were in the minor leagues at the same time, there, I think that front offices spoke about their talent or their prospects in the sense of, I want him to have so many innings pitched before he gets to the big leagues. I want position players to have so many at-bats before they prove to me that they belong in the big leagues. That's obviously shifted because the draft is more important. Guys are getting to the big leagues quicker. So winter ball is less of an option because of opportunity. Now, Yes, you wanted to go get and I knew as a as a young ball player that I wanted to get more at bats to get closer to the big leagues faster. And I thought the more I played, the more attention would be paid to me. But that has gone by the wayside. Yes, it has to do with injury. Money's gotten a little bit greater. But uh, the pride of playing in winter ball has really changed a lot. I'm not sure why that is, because you know, I remember Altuve early in his career would still go down and play in uh, you know, in Venezuela, his hometown. You know, guys would do stuff like that, but that's completely shifted. And full disclosure, I don't think I technically played winter ball because I went to Australia for one winter ball season, which was a paid vacation. Uh, The next season, I was in the Hawaiian Winter League, and I played for the Honolulu Sharks, which was another paid vacation in paradise. And the following year, I went to the Arizona Fall League, and that's stateside in Scottsdale, and that was a fantastic place to be. So I got spoiled rotten in the sense. I know your story's a little bit different, Tuttle, and maybe you'll have an idea of why things have changed a little bit, but um, it, it's definitely shifted, and there's not much emphasis on the winter ball. And just before I let Tuttle take over, Luis, I hope, pray to God, that everything is okay for you down there in Puerto Rico, and I really appreciate the international listen from you down in the Puerto Rico, man. Appreciate it. Nice, Blummer. Yeah, you know, I think we obviously, we all come at it from our own experience. And I will say this, this is where I agree with you. It has changed. The monikers kind of changed for it because I think it's, you know, at bats and, you know, um, at bats at a high level or innings pitched at a high level and high leverage innings. And let's see how they handle the situation. That certainly was part of it. The other part of it, you already brought up the money, but, you know, there are organizations, when I played in the area code games, you know, I played in the area code games with, uh, 
you know, uh, Chris Pritchett and Joel Wolf and Phil Nevin and, you know, these uh, these guys, like, it was like the second area code games, you know? This mm -hmm. was like, oh, yeah, let's get some of these, like, college all-star guys or these high school all-star guys to play in this game. They're going off. Well, I mean, now they have Perfect Game, which is a huge organization that runs tournaments. So, I mean, these scouts go to these organizations. I mean, kids start playing baseball from 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 at these tournaments that, are, that have a ton of exposure and a ton of experience that you, you and I didn't have. The other thing is, for me, I was still, you know, I moved from a starter to a closer in the minor leagues, and it was kind of like, all right, well, let's send him down to Puerto Rico and winter ball to get some innings as a closer and let him come in in the middle of an inning, try and get an out or two. So there were those situational things that you might not get. The other thing you already brought up is I was traded two or three times. So, you know, halfway through the season with the uh, Reds in double A, I was traded to the Tigers. And they moved me from a starter to the bullpen, and then the season ended. So I was like, all right, well, we need to kind of see what this guy's doing. So let's send him down a winter ball, and then, you know, we can keep tabs on him that way. I will say my experience in Puerto Rico, I played in Mayaguez, Luis, and the island's small. So you go to San Juan, to Caguas, to Santurce, all these cool little cities around. Um, you got to look over your shoulder as you're driving through these intersections, because uh, after midnight, I believe you're allowed to kind of run red lights. You know, they had carjacking issues. So it's like you can do all kinds of stuff down there. But uh, the cities are beautiful. It's a great place to play. But, um, you know, checking out all these places. I mean, we had Jose Hernandez, Pito Hernandez, that played shortstop for the Cubs. Benji Molina was our catcher. You know, Pud Rodriguez. I mean, all of these guys. So there were big leaguers, you know, 1997, 1998, still playing down there to kind of stay in shape. And if they're local, I think they play. It sounds like Luis is uh, is on it that they're not playing nearly as much. But as you mm -hmm. said uh, in the last podcast, there's also the offseason that you need. So I, I had a great experience down there. I got replaced right when we went to the Caribbean World Series. So we had the playoffs in Puerto Rico, and we won. And um, I got replaced by a Venezuelan right-hander, uh, Martinez. Uh, you played Astros, Hall of Famer. Um, he was 40. Dennis? Yeah, Dennis Martinez. Are you serious? Dead serious. This is a, so what I'm, the I'm, heck? I, I was 27 years old or 28, had a good winner. And they had the opportunity to bring Dennis Martinez on the team to wow. go to the Caribbean World Series. And he was like 43 or 44. He had retired. I mean, this is what they do. So it's kind of a fun story. So I never met him. I never played against him. But I was called into the office, the old Bull Durham call, which we're all used to. <laughs> and, you know, uh, Tom Gamboa, who I still know. And, you know, mm -hmm. he's a kind of a lifer in baseball. I'm sure you've come across Tom Gamboa and your travails. He called me in the office. He goes, hey, Tuttle, uh, I know we got, you know, we're heading off to uh, – I don't remember Dominican Republic for the Caribbean World Series. Um, we're going to give you your last check here and send you on home. And uh, really, thanks for coming. And I got home and I looked in the box score and they're like, yeah, Tuttle, the transactions like Tuttle got replaced by Dennis Martinez. So, you know, if you're going to get kind of sent home early, yeah. I still got my playoff share. They uh, in cash at uh, spring training. So that's another story. <laughs> when the Cubs trainer came over with like this like envelope and he's like where's Tuttle and I'm like here and he hands me this envelope full of money like I'd done something wrong you know yeah. so uh you know that's a long story to get to uh the winter ball aspect for me it was valuable because I got to play with big leaguers got some exposure as a reliever and could show my wares down there but if you're we talked about this way back early on in the podcast if you're in spring training you're coming off an injury and you're an established big leaguer they're like all right 
no, that's a good job. Yeah, you look good. Okay. If you're not, you're busting your hump trying to like impress somebody. Yep. You're throwing a hundred. You're like, yeah, every pitch. And like, hey, buddy, it's spring training. Like, can't make the club in the tub, that kind of thing. You're like, anyway. <laughs> so true. That was a good story, man. All right. Thank you. That that should be uh, what old Tuttle say, shouldn't it? All right. Could uh, be. Yeah, there we go. So um, this is the last question for the day in the mailbag. And boy, I mean, it's just eating up the whole podcast, which is great. That means we're getting a lot of interaction with the fans. So this is from Phil. Phil M., my question is about the decision to retire from playing the game and what comes with that on a personal level. What's the thought process like? How aware are your teammates, managers, et cetera? How did you finally approach it with the team and what sort of thoughts were going through your mind? Relief, sadness, uncertainty. I'm really curious about those thoughts and emotions are like when the time comes. Let me let me take this one, Blummer, because I just mm-hmm. told you guys some crazy story about Puerto Rico. I'm long-winded. I'm going to make this really short. Managers, coaches, nobody cared when I retired. Um, it was a very personal decision. I could have played another year or two. I was told this kind of towards the end of my career, and I've said this before. Like I know I could have pitched in the big leagues as a middle reliever at some point. I basically was told like, man, you're such a great guy to have around on a team. You could coach, you could do this. And we love bringing you in and we love having you kind of be that guy like in double A or triple A that sets a good example. So that was what I was told, which was great. But that was never the, you know, that was the goal was to play in the big league. So, you know, how long did I want to do this? I had my college degree and it was like, all right, you know, I had met the woman I'm going to marry. I was 30 years old. I wasn't injured, thankfully. And I was like, you know what? I kind of gave it one last stab, played the whole year in AAA and had a good year. I actually had a really good year. You guys can look that up if you want and didn't get the call. And the next year, the Diamondbacks, that was 2000 in AAA. The next year, the Diamondbacks won the World Series in 2001 with like a lot of guys that were my roommates and teammates. And I was like, you know, it, it just wasn't meant to be. You know, I was meant to be on a podcast with uh, Blummer and this is the way it goes. So anyway. No, and it's a testament to Tuttle's temperament also, and you guys get a good understanding on why he's so level-headed and able to, you know, be, I guess, mature in the whole process because when you are chasing a dream, it's hard to tell a lot of those people that it's not going to come to fruition no matter how much you play. And you're right, you could have had the choice to be the good teammate, be the Crash Davis of, of your generation and kind of float around a little bit, maybe hoping for the chance, but... You made the big man decision, and I'm grateful to know you. I'm grateful to know the story. I hope the fans are too, because there are a lot of stories like David Tuttle's for, for every every guy who makes it. There are a lot of guys like you that uh, maybe weren't able to make that decision and got a little bit later in their career and had to work a little bit harder to get back into the real, you know, mainstream life. But uh, it's also a testament to you being a college athlete. I think that goes a long way. It helps you understand and put things in perspective. Uh, I knew on my side, I knew I was done. I was fortunate enough to play 12 years in the big leagues before I got a two-year contract with the Diamondbacks. And I wanted the money. I wanted to play more and somebody thought I could. So I did. And I blew out my knee the first year of the contract, uh, came back and broke my hand the first year of the contract. So I think I played 30 games in 2011, came back healthy in 2012 and, uh, tore my oblique about halfway through April. And it was about that point where I said, okay, I mentally may still be able to play the game, but my body was shutting down. There were things falling apart and I retired at the age of 39 and everybody knew it. We were on a plane coming back from Cincinnati and Alan Trammell was our bench coach. He came to get me. I said my goodbyes to the guys. They knew it was coming. Nobody really, it, it was just 
it was nice meeting you. It was good to move on. You had a great career. And the funniest part about it was Kirk Gibson was the manager at the time, and he pulls me in his office, and he starts, you know, Kirk Gibson. You know, I mean, bulldog, nail, you know, played with, you know, his hair on fire, was just angry, played the game kind of like a football player. And he's sitting across from me. He's got his hands in his head, and he's kind of rubbing his face. I know what's coming. He knows what's coming, but he's having a tough time getting it out. So I really appreciated the fact that he he was kind of, you know, very humble in that atmosphere, knowing that he was going to end, not end a guy's career, but tell him that this was the end of the road kind of thing. And he appreciated being a major league baseball player and what this, this moment meant. And in that moment, I see him kind of shuffling through what he's trying to say. And I said, <laughs> Gibby, I know what's happening. I go, I go, if you want to say it, say it. If you don't, don't. I go, I know it's time, man. I go, I'm beat to hell and I'm exhausted. And he goes, oh, thanks. Yeah, we got to let you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could have sugarcoated a little bit. I was trying to let you off the hook, but he throws you out of there. That's a, that's a, that's a great story as well, and I haven't heard that story. Yeah, and I, to this and you know, Gibby works for the Detroit Tigers still, and to this day, we're the best of friends. We exchange information, we exchange stories, and it's a blast seeing them. But yeah, we gave each other a big hug after that, and I walked out of the office and went into the arms of my family. It was great. That is great, and that's and that's a lot of respect, which is great. And I think that's what you earn in the game. And I said, you know, although it was like the minor league coordinator that gave me my little speech, and my my retirement kind of happened a lot less slowly in the sense that I could have gone back to spring training. For that year you know oh. they were like hey we'll bring you back and it was my decision and that you know it's always good to kind of go out on your own terms like you True. said and i appreciate Definitely. the kind of words that you uh that you shared about that but you're that's a great story i'll, I'll be telling that story you know, like it, it, it is so true. And I think that's why Bull Durham ends up being one of the best baseball movies, because when he calls Crash Davis into that in the into the office, you've mm -hmm. been there. I've been there. You know, many other baseball players have been there. Um, and maybe people feel like that when on their real job, like office space, you know, where the guy gets called <laughs> into the, the two guys, you know, you it's know. like we really like what you're doing here. You know, it's like, all right, thanks. You know, you're getting called in to get to get whacked and you know it. And uh and like you said, you got to have your big boy pants on um, when when that happens. Yeah, and truth be told, I walked out of there crying because I knew it was the end. I mean, there the, yeah. you know there is that human side where I realized that this was the end of the road, and I was going to have to find, you know, other avenues of uh, income with my 15 kids that I had during the course of my baseball career. But uh, you know, I'm, that's in jest. If you're listening to this podcast for yeah. the first time, I only have four kids. It feels like 15 at times. But uh, yeah, I, I did cry on the way home, but there was that sense of relief once I finally got uh, back to the house and started packing up. Uh, great job on Mailbag. Tuttle, I know that uh, this time around, fans are really starting to check in and give us some of their thoughts, and it did take up a large portion of this podcast, but we do want to get to a little bit of business and continue to go to bleacherblums.com if you're listening to this. Give us those questions because they spark some great conversations. And Tuttle and I didn't anticipate telling our winter ball stories. I didn't anticipate telling my story of how my career ended. So you're actually, fans are doing a very good job of kind of poking the bear a little bit and peeling out and grabbing some of that information that we're dying to get out there. And that's why we're on this podcast. So we are grateful to you, the fans who get on bleacherbums.com and get in that mailbag and the questions have been good, man. I mean, it's been all over the spectrum, too. You touch a little bit of sign stealing. You get on the personal side, the parenting side. So that's been a lot of fun. But the biggest news recently, 
uh, has been the trade between the Dodgers and Red Sox. I haven't had, I haven't been privy to the exact numbers that have been exchanged. I haven't been privy to the exact names, but the two biggest names in there are Mookie Betts and David Price going from the Red Sox to the Dodgers and the Dodgers pulling off a massive blockbuster type trade with the Red Sox. And it kind of, I wanted to hear your initial reaction to it because you're out there on the West coast. So you're going to get some different information than we are or different opinions about it. Um, but just from the baseball sense, I've got some ideas about it. But why don't you give me an idea of what you thought when you first saw this trade come across the wire? Yeah, so the, so the Dodgers have been, um, you know, left out in the pasture regarding the sign stealing. So they wanted to bring in two guys that were really familiar with the sign stealing. <laughs> That's and David, but no, I'm kidding. So look, I didn't, I didn't, well tease, I didn't tell you that one. I mean, right? that, so, that was like, my, Matt, I was Magic Johnson <laughs> to Michael Cooper right there. Just, just yeah. the reverse alley-oop dunk. There you go. They needed two guys that were really familiar with the Apple Watch sign stealing, and so they said, we got to get those two guys from the Red Sox. All right, that's good stuff. Um, no, my initial reaction, honestly, I always think about this. Um, you know, we brought up the fact last week that uh, Dusty Baker is going to be the Astros manager. Um, I, I just I, I feel like I have an affinity for the Giants, and I've seen those teams that have won the World Series in 10, 12, and 14 that just didn't have any superstars, but they had great chemistry. My initial thought always in big trades like this is how are they going to fit into the clubhouse? That's all. Um, Jock Peterson got traded yesterday. There's some thoughts and he, he, he went to high school in the Bay area. So I know a couple guys that know Jock Peterson that, you know, not that he's not a good guy in the clubhouse, but a little bit of a different character. Let's just put it at, uh, put it that way. And Astro fans would attest to that. Okay. And they're bringing in Betts and Price, who are two solid veteran guys. Yeah. Betts, as you said, in the last year of a contract, if he does well, obviously he'll get paid well. But they're not, you know, there's not a whole lot of contract there that the Dodgers have to worry about. And he was an MVP. So uh, uh, did he, he won the MVP, didn't he? Yeah. A few years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, so, you're right. yeah. So this guy is like. I mean, How often do you, you see that happen? That's crazy because, I mean, David Price is a Cy Young guy and Mookie Betts is an MVP. Right. So now you got a Cy Young and an MVP guy into that clubhouse. So if anybody can fit in, right, it's kind of the way Verlander fit into the uh, Astros clubhouse when he got there. These guys should be good not to mess up the chemistry. But to me, that's what the trade always comes down to. And as always, even Keel Tuttle is going to say – that you got to take the wait and see approach because you just don't know. I mean, is Justin Turner the clubhouse leader? How does that work with Mookie Betts? Now you have Bellinger, who was the MVP last year. So, I mean, boy, you got Bellinger and Turner and Betts, and I mean that that's a, that's a formidable lineup on paper. And we're just going to have to see how it shakes out. But I I like the trade for the Dodgers. They need something to get over the hump. We usually say it's bullpen yeah. and pitching. But David Price stepped it up two years ago when the uh, Red Sox needed him to to win the World Series. If he's half of that or if he's on when it matters, then maybe that's what the Dodgers need to uh, to uh, to bring the championship to L.A. Yeah, no, I agree. The initial thought is, oh, my gosh, that lineup for the Dodgers is going to be stacked. And I think they had to trade Jock Peterson. There's a lot of strong left handed bats in that outfield for the Dodgers. So moving Jock Peterson to the Angels in they traded for Luis Renjifo, a second base utility type guy. So I'm not sure how he works with the Dodgers, but Jock Peterson going to the Angels makes them better in the outfield because I believe Cole Calhoun has moved on. So you have somebody to fill that right field spot. So you've got Upton Trout and then Jock Peterson. Peterson's lucky because he gets traded within 
well, I was going to say within the city of LA, but that's completely wrong. But uh, <laughs> the Southern the name California region, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The Southern Hemisphere of the California state. But uh, the Dodgers got incredibly better. I think adding the Mookie Betts is going to be great. I'm kind of curious to see how he works. I mean, he, they're coming from big markets and tough situations in Boston to uh, an even bigger market as far as celebrity is concerned in L.A., and I think that'll be great for him. But I also think it'll be great for those guys coming into a ball club where there are a lot of personalities. They'll just mix right in. There's not going to be the expectation on Mookie to go out there and be the MVP. If he goes out there and he does Mookie things, he'll end up putting up all-star numbers. If David Price comes out there, I agree with you. David Price is kind of the wild card, almost I don't want to say a throw-in, but he kind of felt like, oh, would you take David's contract for us too? And the Dodgers said, sure, we'll take him on. And he's pitched out of the bullpen. He had a great postseason in 2018 in the World Series. So he's riding a little bit of a high, maybe trying to come back a little bit. But he's a salty, grizzled veteran who wants to win. And I think he's smart enough to go to L.A. and make the adjustment. And like you said, pitch when they need him. Maybe not every single start when he goes out there, but if he can pick up some big wins against the Padres, the Diamondbacks, and some of these other teams and go out there and do a good job, that'll be worth the pickup. And on the other side, I want to know what your opinions are on the Red Sox side, because I think there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes that we don't know about that maybe encourage this trade. They're up against the luxury tax cap threshold. They want to get under that. So Mookie takes that contract, prices contract go. They get underneath that luxury cap. And I think a lot of this stemmed from the issue, knowing that Major League Baseball was going to come down on them, whether it be a fine, whether it be uh, 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 draft picks. And they realize that, you know what? We just watched the Yankees get considerably better with Garrett Cole. <clears throat> They're going to have some guys healthy. So how are we going to beat the Yankees? Are we going to beat the Yankees keeping Mookie and David Price? Maybe not. And they watch other teams around them get better too. Tampa Bay is always going to compete their brains out against them. So maybe this is an opportunity for them with Alex Cora being fired. They have a GM who's one year into his gig. They're going to hire a new manager. They have, they, it's a, a little bit of a rebuild, I think, for them moving forward, knowing that they could get rid of two big contracts, potential contracts in Mookie, and maybe get some young talent in return, put them out there, and let those guys go out there and succeed a little bit. And the Red Sox can kind of find out who they are with their new GM and with their uh, new manager and let the Yankees run away with it because I think far and away they're the best in the American League East. But at the same time, it also brings up for me the issue of the luxury tax and the CBA coming up because it quote unquote luxury tax is a soft cap in baseball that doesn't really get talked about a lot. You know, you put a lot of research into that or maybe just some thought into it. And I haven't thought about that. But, you know, the, the Red Sox, once they fired, um, uh, they fired the guy a couple of years ago, the president. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, Dombrowski. Yeah. Dave Dombrowski, who's been around. He was with the Tigers when I was playing in the minor leagues there. And uh, when they fired him and kind of made some changes there, you can kind of see that maybe there's a plan, at least from an ownership perspective, to make some changes. And I think you're right. I, I don't think they're throwing in the towel in the sense that, hey, we can't beat the Yankees. But maybe they go for the wild card and they kind of alter what they were doing. And like you, it, we already pointed out, Mookie is on the last year of his contract so you know if he's there and has a good year and then they have to re-up him then that might throw their plans off a little bit the other thing i wanted to throw in with um with david price is that he's 
still younger and a little more spry. I know he's kind of heading towards the end of his career, probably in the latter half, but it kind of reminds me of when CC Sabathia was with the Yankees. Like, I mean, we talked about the chemistry. He's going to be that left-handed kind of grizzled vet in the clubhouse. And those guys tend to be really good with the chemistry. So I wasn't trying to imply that the chemistry won't be good, but that's the piece that we have to see how it fits. But usually a guy like that can get into any clubhouse kind yeah. of, um, make his mark and share some experience and mentality with the younger guys that, that, that they will, um, that they will need and that they will want when, uh, when it becomes, you know, kind of crunch time in the season. Yep. And the Dodgers GM currently is Andrew Friedman is a guy who came from Tampa Bay kind of came in with a Stu Steinberg uh, group when they came over, I think in 2006 or seven. And this all kind of ties into the new GM for the Houston Astros, James Click. And James came over as an intern for Andrew Friedman when he went to Tampa Bay. So Tampa Bay has really done a really good job considering the market value of their team of bringing in great talent via the draft, uh, developing them, winning with them. And eventually those guys go off in free agency or they get traded away for more prospects. But Tampa Bay has been the model of a small market being very competitive and they've had to do it through the front office and good coaching. I you know, in talking to James Click, I had a chance to meet him yesterday. I'm hoping to get some sound on him uh, for an interview in a future podcast for uh, Bleacher Blums, just to let you guys know. But he, you know, he did a very good job, and he answered some questions interestingly enough to the, where I was like, "Wow, this guy gets it on the number side, but he also gets it on the coaching side because you have to have the numbers match up with what the coaches are seeing." And I think that's where baseball's kind of moving is you have eyes on the field, whether it be a scout or a coach who's really got their hands on them, and they can bring their ideas to the front office, and the front office can go, you know what? We can actually back up what you're seeing with the numbers and the data that we have and we're accruing. But I think it's interesting that Friedman took that small market mentality and went over to the Dodgers where he basically got you know carte blanche and a blank check to go out and sign and do things with guys. And he did a good job of accruing a championship team, but he actually made them better by trading away some prospects that maybe weren't in the top 100 or maybe in the top 50 in, in organized baseball. And then he ate some of the money and able to do that to bring those guys over. So I thought it was very creative because he took that small market mentality to a big market and made it work. And I'm I'm wondering if we're going to see a little bit of that with James Click and the Houston Astros because small market mentality, the Astros are have developed into a big market team, but at the same time, the Astros are having the same kind of issue getting up towards that luxury cap where if you get over, you get hammered in taxes and have to pay out. But if they're creative enough and do well enough in the draft, which isn't going to happen for the next two years as far as first and second round picks, you've got to be creative in the international market. You've got to get the payroll below that luxury cap. So he's got some work ahead of him. But I think it's interesting that Tampa Bay is getting plucked of some very good, talented minds in the game of baseball. No doubt. I wanted to say a couple of things about the analytics versus old school. It made me think of my point during winter ball that I wanted to bring up. You kept saying that winter ball has changed. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the analytics old school. I thought winter ball was kind of an old school thing. We talked about off seasons before and retirements. Like some of these guys went away to the war and then they came back and they went to spring training and they got ready. Um, 
you know, a lot of these guys were like, hey, send these guys down to winter ball. They'll get to play, you know, you know, extra, you know, 50 extra innings or 60 extra games, and they're going to get this stuff. Now the analytics don't lie. This guy's already an established guy. He knows how to, you know, so that part definitely comes in a winter ball. And then to piggyback off your point, you know, now that we're more an analytic, you know, we're looking for that, you know, we've talked about it on this podcast a ton, marry those things is I always thought this, I still like Moneyball. I will reread chapters in Moneyball. It's a really entertaining book by Michael Lewis. Um, but Epstein, I, I believe um, when, when Epstein was with the Red Sox, he took the A's theory, so small market theory about, and then he used it in the Red Sox in 2004, like, hey, we're going to do this. So basically small market uh, mentality in a big market. And look what he did, because he was able to pay the best guys because it was a big market team in the small market analytics. And look, he brought two World Series championships to Boston. And then obviously over to the Cubs, he used the same thing. So I think Theo Epstein is probably the, I don't know if he's like the the pioneer of this, but I always thought that from an outsider's perspective that this is the money ball theory that the A's just can't quite follow through with because they are a small market team and they can't just pay the extra guys. That Theo Epstein and some of the other guys, like, the guys that you're mentioning now, the uh, Friedman with the Dodgers and now the Do uh, the Astros new GM, they're using that small market kind of decision-making analytics piece in a bigger market, and they're having a lot of success doing it because the theory works if you're allowed to kind of, you know, ride it out down the road. And great, phenomenal stuff. I, I that was I was excellent, very well put, eloquent, uh, and concise, and well thought out. I, I cannot add anything else to that. I, I think it's it's a great point bringing up Theo because Theo doesn't get talked about in that sense because he immediately moved into a big market like Boston. Everybody said, oh, you had all the money in the world to go do that. But I think that he's done a very good job in taking that money ball aspect and translating it into a bigger market where maybe he can take a little bit more of an opportunity of some of the analytics. But, man, good stuff. I, I can't finish that thing off any better than you just did right there. But that's all I've got on baseball. Um, we're going to move forward. Are you ready for this? Do you want me to throw it to you? He's giving me the head nod, folks. It's time for What'll Tuttle Say? I'm looking at my list of things here. We have so much to talk about. We had the Will Clark thing. We had, you know, a bunch <laughs> of things. But what'll Tuttle say? We're already in an hour here. And um, I, I will just reiterate that the listenership is picking up. We're super appreciative of the listeners to the Bleacher Blums podcast. And hopefully the content and the, uh, the humor and the insight is getting uh, – better and better and better each podcast so today i have a quick story it's not my own story i'm just sharing it so i heard chris long howie long son howie long son on another podcast telling a story and i thought i'd relay the story because we talked about a couple podcasts ago about meeting your heroes and meeting your idols like i got to meet michael jordan and um you got to meet bo jackson and you know how did you feel um so I guess the security on the field before the Super Bowl is pretty intense, and it's just a madhouse down there. There's so many guys. They had all those Hall of Famers, like all those guys in the maroon sport coats. Did you watch the pregame at all? You, you know what I'm talking about. Chris Long was down there. He was man of the year last year in the NFL, and he presented this year's man of the year award to Calais Campbell of Jacksonville. Um, I guess they had played together uh, or against each other in the ACC. I don't know where Calais went, but we know that Chris Long went to Virginia. And so these guys are all just milling about on the field and on the field. And you know this going to uh, award ceremonies and 
different events that uh, everybody has to have a wristband and a placard. And they're, they're actually security guys on the field kind of checking that stuff. And so there's a guy going around like, hey, can I see your wristband? Can I see your wristband? And there's a Chris Long is standing next to Calais Campbell, who's like six foot seven. They're standing next to the quarterback group, which was like Peyton Manning and Tom Brady. And then right next to them were the wide receivers. So Randy Moss was down there and the Patriot guys were milling about. And uh, security guys kind of checking wristbands before they go on air. And Jerry Rice stand there. He doesn't have a wristband. And the guy's like, hey, dude, I mean, you, you've got to get a wristband. And he's like, I don't have a wristband. And, uh, and Chris Long was like standing there watching. He's like, looks at the security guy. And this guy's just doing his job. Like he's not, and I'm not, there's not a bad story here. It's just hilarious. So Chris Long's looking at the security guy and he's looking at Jerry Rice's face as the guy goes, uh, sir, excuse me, you have to get a wristband to be down here on the field. And Jerry Rice, and this is the best part of the story, Chris Long said, could not have been nicer to this guy. And oh, this guy's awesome. not even, he doesn't recognize Jerry Rice. He's not even looking at his face. He's like, uh, sir, you need a wristband. You need a wristband. Jerry Rice is like, I need a wristband to be on the field, really? And the guy goes, yeah, yeah. And he goes, well, where do I get that? And he's like, all right, sir, you just right over there. If you show him your placard, they'll give you a wristband. He's like, all right, if you're saying I need a wristband and we're about to go on air, he goes, I will go get a wristband. Is that, is that what he goes? Yeah. Just make my job easier. It'd be great. Uh, I really appreciate it. And like two people like Chris Long, Joe Montana say like, do you know who this guy is? They're, they're doing For it real. Like, this is the, this is the goat dude. I mean, this is the greatest you know, <laughs> receiver of all time. Maybe the greatest player of all time anyway. And it just, it just kind of brings like real world, like um, real world stuff back, which is, First of all, Jerry Rice, Chris Long reiterated, could not have been more humble and more nice to this guy who was just doing his job. You know it's a madhouse down there. You also know there's people down there that shouldn't be down there on the field. Yeah. So this guy's, you know, got his earpiece in, and they're like, all right, there's like three people on there. You got to make sure they have a wristband, and, you know, you got to— and, uh, and Jerry Rice went and got a wristband and, uh, and hung out on the field, and Chris Long and Joe Montana and whoever else was on the field was like— do you know who this guy is like this? But the fact that Jerry set the example as well, which is he went and got his wristband, kept his mouth shut. He's like, all right, I'll get the wristband. You told me I, I need the wristband. I got it. And, uh, you know, I mean, we could go on and on about like, maybe the guy should have known who he was or he's checking security. But look, if you're just a security guy in the field in an event, um, he was just doing his job. And I, and I just, it's just a really heartwarming kind of cool story. I mean, that guy might be the greatest wide receiver of all time walking the face of the earth and he went and got his wristband and uh and the day went on and so that that's that's all i got for what'll tuttle say i just want to share that anecdote as i said it's not my story chris long told the story i give him full credit it warmed my heart i thought it was funny and hopefully it just you know it just sets the example that we uh that we all need no, absolutely. I agree with you. And I, I pray that if that moment ever happened to myself on a field where I could have the same kind of humility and, and appreciation for somebody else trying to do their job, because I guarantee you that security guard probably sat through about nine hours of meetings on what to do, what not to do, and how to handle it on the field, because you're right. It's a, it's a high, it's a, it's a high leverage situation for him having that many people on a field. Obviously it's a you know, this day and age, that's a target. So, I mean, security is paramount out there because you not only have to protect everybody in the stadium, but you got to protect the 
the celebrities that are out there too, but uh, credit to Jerry Rice for actually being humble enough to be like, okay, instead of going, hey, jackass, you stinking <laughs> millennial, I'm, you know, yeah, yeah. I've got every passing record ever ever on the planet, but uh, great kudos to him for handling that. And that's a nice, that's the anti-get-off-my-lawn story right there in the Waddle Tuttle say, so I like it. And I'm going to stay positive. You want to introduce this one? Yeah, go for it. Uh, after Waddle Tuttle say, we know that Lloyd and Harry want to hear uh, Blum and Blummer. So my favorite part of the show. Go ahead, Blummer. Huh. I expected the Rocky Mountains to be a little rockier than this. I was thinking the same thing. That's Jeff Blum's. Full of shit, man. So I'm going to stay on, even, even though Larry, I mean, Lloyd and uh, Harry think I don't know much, I'm going to stick with the positivity from that last story and what I'll totally say. And my wife threw a podcast idea to me for to listen to, and it, it's called The Revisionist History, and it's actually uh, done by Malcolm Gladwell. And it was really interesting. It was the particular one was uh, the final show of season four for him. It was called The Obscure Virus Club. And uh, truth be told, Tuttle gave me the book from Malcolm Gladwell, Talking to Strangers, uh, for Christmas. I've read it. It's a very good book. It's an interesting book. It uh, it actually, it's one of those thought-provoking books where you're kind of like blown away by some of the stories and then you relate to it and you're like, oh my gosh, I, I, I could have been that guy. I could have been that person. But it's a really intriguing look at the humanity and how we treat others without even actually knowing them. But uh, I highly recommend that. And obviously, Malcolm Gladwell's done a lot of good uh, good work as far as books written. But his podcast, Revisionist History, again, I was listening to the episode of Obscure Virus Club. And it's talked about some of the scientists who were maybe on the, the, the outskirts of regular, you know, doctor society. And they were investigating some of these viruses. And the dude who invent, who found cancer basically brought it up and was blown out of the room like, you're an idiot. This doesn't make any sense. We don't want to hear about it. Go away. Shoo. And he continued to fight through that. And it kind of, it always sparks a conversation with my kids and believing in yourself and everything kind of came into came into my mind as I'm hearing this story because it took forever for this guy to get the Nobel Peace Prize for discovering cancer. And obviously we haven't figured out a way to cure it, but in finding out what cancer was and kind of working it backwards, he found out how to treat HIV. So it kind of, it, it, it splintered into something great that they've been able to treat. But it, I'm going to talk to you a little bit, Tuttle, and kind of get your insight because you're on the same path as I am, trying to encourage our kids that failure is not a bad thing and you shouldn't fear it. You should believe in yourself and believe in your studies, believe in your hard work. And at some point in our life, we figure out that we know too much and we start to fear things. And wouldn't it be great to go back to that kid mentality of where we didn't give two craps about nothing? I was gonna ride my bike off that jump, no matter if it was two feet off the ground or 15 feet off the ground. I was gonna climb that tree, I was gonna try this, I was gonna blow that up, I was gonna see what happened, and I didn't care about the consequences. Eventually you learn from them, but I mean, where have those days gone where we fear, we don't fear failing, or we don't fear getting hurt? And I thought it was a great story. I just thought I'd throw it out there because Tuttle and I played in a sport where it was based on failure. We lived with failure every single day. And somehow you had to find a way, whether it be short-term memory, a mental coach, a spiritual guidance, whatever it was, you had to find a way to 
understand that failure was coming directly at you. You were going to combat it. You were going to beat it every once in a while, but more often than not, you were going to fall down and try and get back up and correct the situation. But I just thought that was a really interesting story. And anytime I can shine light on another podcast, it really invites a thought provoking type situation. I would encourage it. So that was a good one for me, but, uh, Baseball is a tough game. Life is a tough game. And it's about getting through some of that adversity, man. Absolutely. I, I, I can't recommend the revisionist history uh, enough. There is a there is a book out, too. We're turning this into the book club. You mentioned talking with strangers. The one chapter I didn't like in there was the one about the Stanford um, undergrad. I, that one didn't make yeah. sense to me. No, no, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, it was about the alcohol and all that. And I get the yeah. chapter, but I like the other chapters better. Uh, including the judges. I thought the judges in there that where they're like, hey, we'll use the computer to analyze like who's going to, and then they it have actually the concerned me a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, we're human. Like, let's read our signals. I feel good about this. And they're just not on target. So folks talking <laughs> with strangers, an excellent book. And then um, there's a book called Grit out there. And I thought, um, I don't know I the author. I just started this okay. one. I can't wait. It sounds yeah. great to start, by the way. Yeah, she's great. I mean, I've seen her. She has a TED Talk, the author of Grit. I apologize, I don't have it handy. Um, and my sources, I'm sure Blummer can look it up. But anyway, so Grit is a good book. And I thought that this kind of goes to your, uh, your just to finish up with Blum and Blummer about trying things and failing, is that I think uh, from an early age, very often we do this with our kids. We were talking about private coaching earlier. We go, oh, you have an affinity for this, so you should do this. And what the book Grit says is like, yeah, 10,000 hours, yeah, this. But if you're not good at math, the way to get good at math is to practice math. Like, do it. And you can get good at it. You can learn anything. So it's very easy for us to say, well, I have a creative brain. You know, I like English and, you know, history, but I don't really get the math and the science part. Well, if you really want to get it, you can. And that's what she's saying. And that's scientifically proven over time if you just grind it out and get after it. And, and I think I've said this before, too, but I used to think athletics was about, you know, teamwork and being competitive and wanting to win and having sportsmanship. And what I realized, the best lesson I learned playing high-level sports and being competitive was that you you fail, you get knocked down, you fail. And I think more, uh, more so than in our world, like Olympians, right? They get, they have to wait every four years. And I remember when Eric Hyden or his sister, she was a speed skater, both of them, one of them fell. He was the preeminent favorite for the gold medal. Yeah. He fell in a preliminary and didn't even make it to the medal round. And he had to wait four years to come back. And then in the four years, he won two or three golds when he came back. And um, I, the point is, that is the, that's the lesson. I mean, that's what you're talking about. This guy, you know, the, the, that discovered cancer and got kind of shooed out of the room. And I mean, you just got to keep grinding. You got to grind it out. And, and if, if failure is not an option and you have a passion for something, keep after it. And that's a really simple way to say it. It truly is. And Grit, the book that uh, Tuttle is talking about, is written by Angela Duckworth. Highly recommend it because, I mean, I think I'm a chapter into it and I'm just, you know, I'm, wow. It, you kind of have to like stop after a chapter, sit back and kind of reevaluate, think about what's going on because it is kind of fascinating. And that's what we all kind of want to do, too. There, you know, there's another book called Endure where Malcolm Gladwell actually does the the pre the preview to it or the uh, good prologue. God prologue. Thank you. Uh, written by Alex Hutchinson, and it's fascinating too because we're always trying to get into the mentality of, of the military, the mentality of the CEO, mentality of the athlete, and find out what it is that makes them that that allows them to go further than everybody else. And to your point, and I kind of 
you didn't say it specifically, but it goes to work ethic too. If you have a great work ethic, you're going to be able to find a way to grind through or get through the grit to, or have the grit to get through some of these things. So that's, that's good stuff, but we're always encouraging. Uh, we appreciate everybody listening to the podcast. Uh, the sponsors have been great. I know we've got one more in Rams shirts. We've got some new gear coming out and Tuttle's got a word to say about them. CrushCityTees.com is the place to go for custom H-Town baseball tees. We've been saying that for a while. They've been a sponsor of ours since the beginning. They have direct-to-garment machines. They can make your idea a reality with no minimums, no setup fees, and unlimited colors. They also provide embroidery and screen printing, design and printed, right there in Houston, CrushCityTees.com. That's CrushCityTees.com. Uh, shout out to them, and uh, thank you for sponsoring the podcast. And as long as you're done with that, Total, you got anything else to send us home? I do not. I will say um, we may have a kind of a, a, a special podcast between now uh, and the next one. We have some audio, as you mentioned, from the GM and maybe Dusty Baker. So we're going to do a quick little uh you know, interlude, I guess, or kind of a rare podcast for us. And then I'm going to have to uh, stay on you about uh, figuring out which brewery uh, that you need some beer sent from. So I will be sending Blummer uh, a six-pack of beer here from uh, the left coast, from Southern California. And there are many to choose from, and he's probably had most of them. But uh, that's your homework, Blummer. So next time when you get on air here, we'll uh, we'll see what you came up with. But that's all I have. I mean, we always have the shout-out to the military first responders. Um I mean, that's, that, that goes without saying, and we, we can't do this podcast, and we can't uh, show our appreciation enough. But uh, we're, we, we've moved from 60-minute podcast to, like, 75 <laughs> minutes, and uh, I don't know. It's just going to keep on going. Yeah, and that's a good thing. It's because we get a lot of great stuff. Obviously, we took that mailbag today, so continue to go to bleacherblums.com, and we will get to you as often as we possibly can. But uh, it has been a lot of fun. We do appreciate the military and the first responders, everything they do for us, getting in harm's way, protecting us, saving us, keeping us in our free state to be able to pull this podcast off. And it has been a very good one at that. We do get a little, little long-winded, but guess what? People keep tuning in. So we're going to keep chatting about baseball life and uh, a lot of things that you guys ask us. So we appreciate all of you. And of course, it's that time of the podcast where we tell you to get after it. Most of all, believe it. It's really just a